Uh, good evening, if you're in the United States or North America. I'm Michael Green. I'm the incoming uh, CEO of the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Um, I'll be there in June. Uh, right now, I'm in uh, Ames, Iowa, traveling in the United States. Um, but pleased to be joining you to talk about the implications of the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine for NATO uh, and for NATO's overall strategic concept and relations with uh, Asia Pacific partners and allies, including, of course, Australia, uh, but also Japan, Korea. The significance of the Ukraine invasion for how Europe and the United States might think differently about contingencies not discussed much before in the transatlantic context, contingencies like Taiwan or the Korean Peninsula. Um, the future of the transatlantic relationship. There are a lot of gears turning in the international system now because of Vladimir Putin's brutal and unjustified attack on Ukraine, because of the Ukrainians really inspiring resistance. And you see nations rallying in different ways, but you also see uh, other counter trends. Much of the world uh, that is not in the G7 or the OECD is ambivalent or in some cases, even sympathetic with the Russians. So it's a complicated story. And right at the heart of this is the transatlantic relationship and the NATO alliance. And as I said, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, our friends and allies in the Indo-Pacific. To try to pull all this together, we're calling on uh, one of our best at the US Studies Center, um, Dr. Gorana Gurgic, who is the um, uh, expert on NATO at the center. She's appointed senior lecturer at the Department of Government and International Relations at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. She's taught undergraduate and postgraduate units in politics and foreign policy, world politics, ethnic politics, international organizations, and interdisciplinary studies at the University of Sydney. Uh, she's been a visiting scholar at Harvard um, at the Aminda um, de Gunsberg Center for European Studies. Uh, and a 2021 Partners Across the Globe Fellow at the NATO Defense College. But before we begin our discussion, um, uh, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gagadal people of the Aroa Nation, and I pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. And because I'm in uh, Iowa, let me also pay respect to the Ilini Otoe and Dakota Sioux, something we don't do in the United States, but I wish we did more as our friends in Australia do. So, uh, Grana, welcome. Let's get right into it. We'll take questions from you. You can send the questions to Grana or to me in the Q&A function. We'll, this will be 70% me quizzing Grana and 30% her quizzing me back on East Asian allies. But let's start first with um, NATO, Grana. Um, there's a NATO summit uh, at the end of June. NATO is working on a new strategic concept. How do you think the Ukraine crisis is changing the orientation, the dynamics, obviously the composition of NATO, and, and what, might we, what might we expect in the uh, strategic concept? Thank you, Mike, and uh, good morning and good evening to all of you who are joining us now uh, live uh, and also uh, reporting from the Gadigal land. Uh, I am uh, at the University of Sydney at the moment, and we eagerly await uh, for you to come here so we can do these things uh, in person rather than uh, via Zoom. But um, 
to get to uh, your question uh, on where NATO is at the moment and uh, what might be coming up and what we should be looking uh, over the over the next couple of weeks and months, really, because uh, there are some very big developments that uh, we are going to see in terms of the alliance. So, um, first of all, uh, we, we are just to take uh, what was uh, on the agenda for NATO anyway uh, was uh, the Madrid Madrid summit that is going to take place uh, at the very last week of June, so in a month's time. And that summit is actually a very important one for NATO because for the first time in over a decade, NATO will unveil its new strategic concept. So basically a kind of guiding uh, set of, of uh, principles and assessment for where it is that uh, the alliance should be going and what it should be doing uh, in the forthcoming uh, years. And this is important because we need to understand that actually there have been some um, uh, pushes for NATO to actually figure out what it is that uh, it is and what it's supposed to do uh, that have come even prior to Russia's invasion of NATO, uh, sorry, invasion of Ukraine um, in, in February. And they were important for NATO because um, we can only go back to, you know, the Trump ad administration where there was a lot of uh, these kind of uh, uh, debates basically about uh, the utility of NATO for uh, the United States, but it, there were also serious questions about its capability uh, and value from the European side. And, um, you know, you go back to President Macron, who has recently been re-elected as president of France, who has wondered if the alliance is brain dead. Um, so there was that, that kind of chatter um, at the institution level within NATO, uh, we had uh, Secretary Stoltenberg launch the so-called NATO 2030 agenda, where, uh, again, um, spurred by the various developments um, around the world, uh, whether they are, you know, at the level of kind of interstate competition or in terms of the emerging technologies or the impact that some of the transnational issues like climate change have on the alliance. And, and its ability to uh, project uh, uh, influence um, that uh, were basically motivating this sort of idea that NATO really needs to think uh, a bit harder and, and come up with a strategic concept that is going to address all of these things, right? And so um, I'm going to uh, wrap this up very shortly, but just to say that uh, then the, the lead up to the Madrid summit was really meant to be uh, a kind of road of NATO's uh, a kind of strategic introspection of reflection. Uh, and then obviously uh, Russia invaded Ukraine on February of 24th. And all of these things that we thought that NATO is going to feature a lot more in its strategic concept around things like crisis management or cooperative security uh, on uh, making some statements that are going to be, you know, much more focused on NATO becoming more global and political. I wouldn't say that they've gone away, but they, they have certainly been deprioritized 
in NATO these days, as we uh, get closer towards the Madrid summit, is going to be much more about defense and deterrence, which is basically what I would call the original factory settings for the alliance, why it was created back in 1949. The original factory settings did not include Sweden and Finland. Um, what do you expect from the NATO summit in terms of their bid for membership? And do you think the Turkey problem will be sorted out by then? That's absolutely right. So uh, back in 49, it was only 12 uh, uh, member states originally. Uh, today, we have NATO uh, that has 30 member states. Last couple of uh, rounds of enlargement were actually very, very far from uh, European North. Uh, it was in the Balkans region, uh, something that is a kind of a, an object of my uh, long-term long study. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, certainly what we have seen and what we can't really overestimate is the significance of Sweden and Finland. I think I've just uh, also devised the portmanteau of Finland. Um, okay, so uh, they um, uh, um, have obviously signaled their readiness to uh, join the alliance because and willingness really because of the change threat assessment. And um, now obviously we have to understand about one thing about NATO, which is uh, that it operates on the principle of consensus of all uh, member states, which means that unless everyone agrees uh, nothing has been agreed upon. And uh, so far, obviously, we've heard uh, some of the object objections that have been coming out of Ankara. Uh, they are uh, primarily serving domestic politics purposes, uh, where uh, we know that the, the genesis of, of this sort of uh, objection to uh, the entry of these two states has to do with uh, Turkey's uh, treatment and relations uh, with uh, its uh, Kurdish minority, but also with the Kurdish diaspora, uh, of which uh, there is quite a significant number in these two Nordic states. But ultimately, um, what I think will prevail, uh, there, there might be some concessions that Sweden and Finland will uh, be giving, or, or at least on a symbolic level. Uh, but I think that at the moment, the uh, sort of pulse of the alliance is such where uh, outright opposition to Sweden and Finland joining would um, uh, basically translate into uh, being, um, you know, uh, kind of helping uh, Putin's cause and Russia's cause. And I think uh, in, in that context, um, probably the, the kind of uh, institutional balance of power and the fact that uh, overall across the alliance, there is a lot more agreement these days on uh, the utility and need for NATO uh, to be strong uh, that's much greater than uh, the obstructions coming from a single state. But that's not to say that, you know, we aren't gonna see these sort of, uh, um, tussles and, and um, there is certainly a lot that's going on in the background that isn't getting reported in the lead up to the summit. But I would say more importantly, uh, what we've seen from the member states so far, uh, at least the, the other 29, more or less everyone has committed to fast tracking uh, the uh, applications for membership. Obviously, we know that uh, this needs to go through the kind of treaty ratification process in uh, the legislatures of the member states. And so far, 
um, you know, even out of the United States, where we, we know uh, what the situation is like on, on the Hill, there's uh, not a lot of agreement uh, on a lot of matters. But when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to support for Ukraine, uh, there has been a, a lot of bipartisanship. So when NATO expanded to include um, the Balkans, um, tell me if this it doesn't square with your deep research on that subject, but it seems to me that that stabilized a, a part of Europe that was historically unstable and a real vacuum and a real magnet for great power competition. But the Balkans members, and same for the Baltic, didn't bring significantly new capabilities. But when you're talking about Finland and Sweden, you're talking about some real capabilities for NATO, right? This is not just stabilizing a part of Europe. This is adding uh, obviously more borders, but also the, the, the Swedes and especially the Finns are extremely capable military uh, powers, aren't they? I mean, this is a huge onside goal for Putin, it seems. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So if we think about the last three uh, waves of uh, NATO enlargement in 2009, 2017, 2020, uh, NATO uh, uh, received uh, four extra member states that have uh, in one way or another uh, uh, had the experience of uh, protracted uh, ethnic conflicts that have been actually security consumers during uh, the 90s. So we are talking about Croatia, Albania, uh, Montenegro, and North Macedonia. Um, so obviously differ, they differ in their experiences in the 90s. But uh, certainly uh, this was an area where NATO uh, actually for the first time in the post-Cold War history and uh, in its existence uh, actually uh, was deployed in a capacity that had to do with crisis management, which is um, a different sort of competence if you think about uh, uh, if you think about it to say what I referred to earlier, the defense and deterrence, which is core to NATO's existence. And this was in fact enshrined in NATO's strategic concept uh, at the end of the 90s, in 99, when NATO made uh, its core task uh, to be crisis management, and then later on also added cooperative security. Uh, a decade later. So uh, these Balkan states uh, veritably were uh, security consumers. Uh, NATO uh, accession was meant to essentially help them uh, um, sort of um, uh, forge a path towards Euro-Atlantic integration. There is this joke that, you know, U.S. Uh, likes to uh, get to, to the, the final destination European, and so it, it kind of, in spearheading NATO, uh, it helps countries get there, whereas European Union is much more about the journey, and, you know, um, we, we know that uh, these countries, out of these four, for instance, only Croatia is a member state, state of uh, the European Union, and so in terms of the Euro-Atlantic integration, NATO was seen as a much uh, a sort of easier way to integrate uh, these uh, countries than, say, um, the uh, process of EU enlargement, which is very much stalled um, when it comes to the Western Balkans six, as they are referred to. 
Now, um, on Sweden and Finland and what they bring, uh, NATO, you're absolutely right. They are bringing uh, huge uh, capacity and capability to add. They are security producers. Uh, they are arms exporters, for, in for instance, arms ma manufacturers. They, they have that uh, on the capability side, uh, they have both the materiel and the personnel. But also from the geostrategic uh, perspective, from if you you know just look at the map of Europe, what NATO is now getting is uh, basically a consolidation of the Nordic space. Um, so. Um, Obviously, I, I hope that this comes as no news. Uh, Iceland, Denmark, Denmark, Norway, all member states in that kind of uh, Nordic uh, ring. Now, uh, Sweden and Finland joining uh, NATO closes that part, the, the kind of hole that there was uh, for historic uh, reasons. Obviously, we, we know uh, the, the kind of whole issue of Finlandization, right, and, and neutrality, also Swedish uh, foreign policy that was predicated on uh, non-alignment for the past two centuries. But now, again, as I said, threat assessment is significantly different. And uh, this means that now uh, the uh, NATO border uh, with Russia is going to extend by some 1,300 kilometers, uh, which, you know, if uh, you were Vladimir Putin and your calculations were to try to prevent uh, NATO from uh, basically uh, coming closer to Russia's borders, uh, this seems to be a massive backfiring and uh, uh, something that certainly not a lot of us who follow uh, uh, what goes on in NATO were expecting if, you know, you just uh, look at some of the public opinion polls in the these countries um, in Finland uh, early this year that support for NATO accession prior to uh, Russia's invasion was uh, less than one third. These days, uh, three quarters of Finns uh, support accession. Uh, nearly 60% 60 60 of Swedes are also supporting it. So uh, a huge uh, shift in terms of uh, the public opinion that we, again, we can't overstate how significant February uh, 24th uh, has been for Europe. In 20 years, when scholars talk about Finlandization, it's gonna mean something completely different. Uh, it, it, 180 degrees different from how you and I studied it and, and used the word over the last um, decades, in my case, decades. Um, the other thing it seems to me is um, Finland and Sweden joining Norway and, 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 and Denmark and other Nordic countries in NATO really beefs up the focus on the Arctic and an Arctic security, which I, I, I'm guessing is not a huge theme in Australia, but in the US and Canada, uh, in Norway and NATO countries in Alaska, it's a big, big theme as, as China now, you know, builds a Silk Road to the Arctic and Russia is dramatically expanding its military capabilities. And I, I have not seen much about that, but I would imagine this is also going to sort of reinforce the most northern flank of what NATO uh, thinks about in terms of security. You know, the last 20 years have been pretty rough for the transatlantic relationship. Um, I was in the Bush White House for the first uh, four and a half years of the Bush administration. We had, so I was in charge of Asia. My job was relatively easy because we had very strong ties with our Asian allies and President Bush personally had strong connections to John Howard and Prime Minister Kuizumi and others. But um, Europe was tough. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Congress 
um, changed the menu in the cafeteria because of French criticism of the Iraq war, you know, and famously got rid of French fries and called them freedom fries. And I remember Georgetown students marching outside of the French embassy wearing chicken suits. It was a pretty tough time. Um, we kind of recovered actually in the second term of the Bush administration. Um, and then, you know, the Trump administration was particularly rough uh, in transatlantic relations. And, um, you know, Donald Trump's former Secretary of Defense and other senators have come out and said, he, if he had been really elected, he wanted to pull out of NATO and Korea. Um, so we dodged a bullet. Um, but, but the Biden administration had its own very rough patch with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where, as you know, European leaders were un more than unhappy. They were distraught that the U.S. didn't coordinate that, didn't communicate, didn't handle it well. Um, and, 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 and now it seems like all of that is is gone. I, I've heard European diplomats in Washington say the Biden administration's handling of the diplomacy on Ukraine has been almost perfect. Um, and I've heard Asian allies uh, uh, from Taiwan to Japan, Australia talk about how effective this has been. So my question for you is this, is, is the transatlantic relationship, is NATO, transatlantic NATO, on an upward trajectory that we can feel very confident now because of what Putin has done? Or do we have to worry that Donald Trump could come back, that Marine Le Pen, you know, could come back, that anti-Europe um, and, and anti-European politicians in the US, anti-NATO politicians in France um, or other parts of Europe might come back? Or, or, or does this put us in a whole new chapter where we're in a much stronger position for transatlantic relations? Um. Uh, and maybe it would be too too easy of an answer to say we, we just don't know it's too too early to tell uh, yeah. I would say but what I would say and thank you for sharing uh, some of those uh, personal anecdotes and certainly uh, they they do go towards this line around transatlantic relations uh, being mired with crisis that the kind of history of transatlantic relations is one of different crises right uh, and that's not a very original thought uh, Stanley Hoffman of Harvard University, who was a great scholar of uh, Europe-US uh, relations, uh, uh, wrote extensively uh, about that back in the day. And you know, we go back to um, the US presidents as, as early as uh, Kennedy's administration, for instance, uh, who were equally critical and sounded almost Trumpian in their derision of European allies who weren't spending enough on their defense and who were being forever clients of the US and so on. He didn't quite put it in those terms of being free riders and so on, but certainly uh, some of that sentiment has been there for quite some time. So I would say if we think about, you know, in terms of more kind of long durée and, and kind of historic trends, uh, there are uh, elements there that will say that, you know, US and uh, Europe is as much as they are uh, kind of natural partners, uh, at the same time, uh, there are still different kind of kinds of entities, right? And also that's another thing that we have to think about when we talk about transatlantic relations is that US deals with uh, different types of actors in Europe. And that's the famous and alleged uh, uh, kind of statement by uh, Henry Kissinger uh, of who do you call when you wanna talk to Europe, right? Um, and is this the sort of you know call that you are placing to the European Commission or the president of the 
EU Council or uh, for that matter on security matters to uh, the Secretary General of NATO or do you talk to uh, the, the kind of uh, peers and colleagues uh, in um, Paris, Berlin, London, etc. And especially how that got complicated as well with Brexit where the kind of traditional axis of transatlantic alliance, the one between UK and US is no longer serving that sort of purpose within um, the European Union for obvious reasons uh, and, and uh, UK's exit out of the EU. So that's one thing there. Um, I would say in terms of uh, where we might be heading in terms of uh, NATO uh, unity uh, and, and kind of harmony that we've seen over the, the past couple of months, uh, that is something that has really surprised uh, everyone, uh, myself included. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, um, for all of the, the reasons that you mentioned, so uh, last year's sort of uh, fallout over the U.S. Uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan that Europeans uh, were skating of, uh, really. But then to add that insult to injury, just a month later, U.S. unveiled AUKUS agreement as well, which I, I'm sure we'll touch on in just a little bit, uh, which uh, made uh, Europeans, or a lot of Europeans at least, uh, in terms of the, the kind of elite level chatter, um, very disappointed and wondering, you know, if Biden just has nicer words and pretends to do things in, in partnership with others, but that the US uh, is uh, more or less throwing Europe uh, under the bus or not consulting uh, on a lot of these important matters. So uh, the, this uh, turn really, and I think what the Biden administration has really done very well and very uh, sort of uh, uh, skillfully and, and consciously is to stress how much it has consulted and coordinated with uh, European uh, allies and partners, uh, whether it comes to uh, provision of humanitarian aid, of, of uh, military aid in terms of rolling out sanctions regime and, and so on. So uh, really we see uh, a lot of cooperation across the Atlantic at the moment. Now, in terms of longevity of uh, these sort of shifts, um, it uh, will depend uh, a lot also on the domestic politics side of things, right? So as you already mentioned, um, what if we get a different a president from uh, the from the Republican Party that president happens to be Donald Trump in 24? What happens uh, if uh, Europe uh, really starts freezing um, at the coming winter? So currently, obviously, Northern Hemisphere is approaching summer. It is already pretty hot. Uh, the, the kind of demands maybe for uh, gas aren't as great, even though we know that gas can also be used for electricity electricity that, that powers those air conditions. But, you know, as uh, commodities prices start rising, as uh, the domestic buying and support for uh, the, the kind of efforts uh, and economic warfare, quite frankly, start waning, what happens then? Uh, 
who is going to uh, uh, make sure that 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 sort of unity and convergence uh, is maintained and how will that be done? There are serious discussions that are being had uh, around that. Um, but again, uh, I would just caution everyone who, you know, uh, at this point says that they're absolutely certain that this is, you know, the, the kind of golden age uh, is coming or that the doomsdays are coming. Uh, there are just a lot of factors uh, that are floating uh, in the air. But obviously we know as well that these kinds of crises uh, are what propels usually a lot of institutional innovation and, and uh, kind of opens up a lot of doors for cooperation in a way that uh, couldn't have been seen before uh, again. And, and uh, we'll refer back to uh, the, the imminent uh, enlargement of NATO to the North as one of the examples of that. One of the one of the sources of tension in the transatlantic relationship has been the U.S. Um, pronounced pivot to Asia, um, most notably when Hillary Clinton published an article in November 2011 in Foreign Policy uh, declaring a pivot to Asia, written by um, Kurt Campbell, who's now the senior coordinator for Indo-Pacific in the Biden White House, um, uh, and with AUKUS, as you mentioned. Um, the reality is most of American history, Europe has dominated our foreign policy um, and Britain was the privileged ally. And in World War II, 70% of the fighting material went to Europe uh, in, 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 the, in the war. Um, during the Korean War, when Americans and Australians were fighting and dying in the Korean Peninsula, the US Army sent more divisions to Europe to reinforce NATO than it sent to Korea to fight in an actual war. Uh, and there are other examples as well. Um, but beginning around the time of the pivot in 2011, in public opinion polls, for the first time, Americans began saying uh, Asia is more important than Europe. The German Marshall Fund, you know, uh, for decades did this polling because they could point to it and say, look, Americans think Europe's more important than, than any other part of the world. And their own polls in 2010 started showing Americans thought Asia was more important. Um, and uh, this has, you know, this has not been comfortable for our European allies at all. Um, and it didn't just begin in 2011. I, Rich Armitage, who's a good friend and mentor, was the senior Asia official in the Reagan administration in the Pentagon. And he described the, a, 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 a delegation from the House of Lords who came to see him. And he described America's strategy in Asia. And he, and he tells this story all the time. But this um, representative from the, from the House of Lords said, young man, to us, Asia is the other side of the moon. Um, uh, so this has been a source of real tension. The, the, the NATO allies have been used to having sort of privileged position in US foreign policy, and that's that's shifting. Kurt Campbell's office in the White House is three times larger than the Europe office in the NSC. Uh, so AUKUS in part happened because, you know, it wasn't a fair fight. Um, but it seems to me the Ukraine invasion has maybe dissipated some of that Europe or Asia, um, you know, which, which child do you love more, America, your NATO allies or your Asian allies? It seems to some extent, maybe the Ukraine invasion has dissipated that because th th this is a global event and Asian allies have stepped up. Japan, Australia, Singapore stepped up. Korea um, now under President Yoon is really stepping up. And you can see this is a global event, a global security crisis. So it also seems like that source of tension may be going away. And there's more of a uh, Indo-Pacific transatlantic common sense of security. Uh, it's nascent in some ways. Um, 
what do you think? Is this is this a temporary phenomenon, or do you think this is? is I'm asking you to predict the future. Um, <laughs> you know, as the famous American baseball player Yogi Berra said, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> but but predict about the future. Do you think this is nascent, or does this really the sort of as our Chinese friends would say, the forces of history? This is such a great question. And I don't mean that uh, in the sort of usual space filler uh, and time filler, let me compose my thoughts now. Um, I am actually a very interested and have been a student of the sort of idea of transplanting the transatlantic cooperation into the Indo-Pacific. And you're absolutely right. If we go back a decade ago and uh, you referred to that famous uh, uh, article from Foreign Policy by Hillary Clinton that uh, was that, that basically launched a pivot. And then um, from my uh, end and, and kind of interest of uh, uh, you know, what the responses in Europe were at the time. For instance, Javier Solana, who used to be the Secretary General of NATO, as well as the EU's high rep for foreign uh, policy and security affairs, who penned a response uh, uh, which uh, said that this is a perilous pivot away from Europe and that basically the, the kind of, you know, and obviously we know that Obama administration went into a lot of uh, PR damage control and, and uh, uh, said that this is not a pivot, this is a rebalance, we're just rebalancing, but Europe, we still love you and so on. And, and you alluded already to, to some of the, the kind of touchiness of, of these issues. But uh, what I really see over the uh, past couple of years and really what has been highlighted uh, by the fact that we have a conventional high intensity war uh, going on in Europe is how interconnected the European and Indo-Pacific theaters are. I think that this is a very uh, big sort of paradigm change, if you want, where, you know, uh, again, a decade ago, uh, it, it wasn't seen as such. But given the fact that we have seen now uh, for years, uh, China and Russia really coming together in a way that, you know, obviously makes a lot of people wonder if this is true love or just a, a marriage of convenience. But certainly the fact that even just, you know, two or, or uh, so weeks before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, they, they basically issued this uh, statement on their strategic uh, partnership, almost, you know, that, that reads as a, as a kind of informal alliance uh, that has made uh, a lot of uh, people, both in Washington and uh, in European uh, capitals realize that uh, you can't necessarily do things uh, by yourself uh, that, you know, uh, because of the nature of these two states where they sit uh, in, in terms of, you know, the, the geopolitics, uh, that it is important to uh, cooperate uh, across these two theaters. And I would just point to the fact that, uh, again, this is not something that necessarily then just got accentuated by uh, Russia's invasion and in the ensuing war, but also the fact that, for instance, in Euro Europe over the past four or so years now, we have seen a growing interest 
in the Indo-Pacific, right? So uh, the kind of main propeller uh, behind this sort of interest has been France for obvious reasons, because it sees itself actually as one of the res resident powers uh, in the Indo-Pacific because of its uh, possessions in the South Pacific. But then uh, it managed to uh, twist the arm somewhat of the German uh, Foreign Federal Office. So Germany also published its um, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. We uh, then saw uh, Netherlands publish its own, uh, Britain uh, as part of its a new sort of uh, uh, role on the world stage away from the European Union unveiled its uh, Indo-Pacific tilt. And uh, actually the European Union uh, just a day after AUKUS was announced published its own uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. It even has an envoy uh, that is in charge of the Indo-Pacific affairs. And actually, um, having just talked to, to that uh, person a couple of days ago, because he's in Australia, you wouldn't believe that, um, I was told that uh, at the moment there is quite a vibrant uh, dialogue that goes on between Brussels and Washington at the level of uh, Deputy Secretary of State uh, when it comes to uh, uh, coordinating uh, efforts and cooperating uh, on matters of uh, Indo-Pacific, uh, whether it's security or economic cooperation, particularly uh, a kind of a big ticket item here, uh, cooperation on uh, infrastructure diplomacy. So I would say, uh, again, I know that this is a kind of long way to get there, but I don't think that this is necessarily going to go away. And again, uh, a major sort of change is one where Europeans are increasingly looking into the Indo-Pacific, realizing they have also hardened their line of, on China, right? So here we have a lot more conversation than we had just a decade ago where a European uh, Union thing thought that it could just go uh, and, and kind of pretend that there are no security uh, implications of growing interdependence with, with China. But um, that changed very much when it published uh, its uh, 2019 strategic outlook on China, where it actually said that China is both an economic partner, but also a systemic rival. So these are uh, much bigger and greater forces that I think will persist uh, long after uh, hopefully uh, things start calming down uh, in Europe. Uh, and, and I say that with a with a with a sort of you know um, side of me knowing that that we could also be seeing a very protected um, conflict and a grind uh, in Ukraine. In, in 2005, the EU was moving to lift the arms embargo on China that had been put in place after Tiananmen. Um, and um, it was a crisis in transatlantic relations. Most people don't think about it now, but it was a big crisis because um, China, the PRC was promulgating the anti-secession law, which would have made it um, a matter of Chinese law to use force against Taiwan to prevent secession. So at a time when China was about to um, pass in the National People's Consultative Congress, uh, you know, an act um, declaring the right, which they always had, of course, but nevertheless telegraphing the right to use force against Taiwan, the EU was gonna lift the arms embargo and, and make it possible to sell weapons to China. So we had a huge transatlantic spat. And my small contribution at the time in my position uh, as the person running Asia at the NSC was to propose a transatlantic dialogue on China and Asia. 
And I'm pretty sure that's where it started. And it was on again, off again, but we had never talked about it strategically in a serious way between the US and Europe. Um, and um, when we did, frankly, for the next 10, 15 years, it was all about China. It was very hard for Washington to get European friends um, ex with a few exceptions uh, to think about Japan, Australia, Korea. Um, that's very different now. The, the Japanese relationship with Europe is just blossoming. So is Australia's. Um, the Indo-Pacific strategies, it was Japan and Abe Shinzo who um, promoted Indo-Pacific, but it really was, you know, Rory, our friend Rory Metcalf's uh, construct in Australia years before that. So there really is more and more of a convergence, not just on Asia, but with Asian, with Asian allies, which is a really, really a, a important uh, development. Um, we, the other thing is I think Ukraine has shown that um, the, 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 the crisis caused by a, an attack on a free people, uh, by an authoritarian state, can, can, can allow for the mobilization of democracies around the world. And you know, Taiwan sees this, the Japanese foreign minister, Hashiyosu Masa said, Japan must act on Ukraine because China's watching. Um, and I think the demonstration effect has been pretty, pretty powerful. Uh, it would be harder to mobilize European economic pressure on China in a crisis on Taiwan uh, or over on Taiwan than it has been to organize Asian pressure on Russia. But you could do it. And this demonstrates that. And I think that, that enhances deterrence in, 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 in the Western Pacific as well. So it's a really quite significant development. Let me ask you one last kind of um, almost provocative question, but in Washington right now, there's a real buzz um, and a real buzz is not the right word. There's a real alarm that Putin might possibly use low yield nuclear weapons uh, against the Ukrainians. Um, it would be a colossally stupid and self-defeating move, but so was this entire invasion as we saw with the damage done to Russia's economy and the expansion of NATO. How would, how would low yield nuclear weapons use, a threshold not crossed ever in Europe and only once before in history, of course, with Japan, how, how would that transform NATO? Um, you know, would we start seeing what we saw in the 80s with the deployment of tactical U.S. nuclear weapons? I mean, what, what on the nuclear side, what, what does that do? And I would think it would also be another thing that would link Asian and European allies around security problems. I mean, if we talk about the invasion as a game changer, um, then such a thing would certainly be, uh, you know, something that obviously there is uh, contingency planning that has been done, right? And, and I have no doubt of that. I'm not privy, obviously, or haven't been privy to those discussions. So I, I wouldn't want to weigh in on, on those sorts of things. But I would say that um, one thing that uh, is, is, really concerning is the way that uh, this has been uh, almost normalized in terms of the discussions uh, around the war, right? That uh, we could uh, expect this, that, um, you know, there is not a lot that could deter Russia at, at this point, uh, given that actually the use of uh, tactical nukes is part of their military doctrine as well. Um, so Russia has been uh, talking and writing about this in, in some of the key strategic documents for quite some time. But when you you ask what it would do for the alliance, uh, 
Well, I, I think that already what we are seeing is a mobilization that we haven't seen at any point uh, following the Cold War, but this would be uh, something that uh, definitely would uh, make NATO act in a way that obviously uh, would uh, find a, a sort of a response to to uh, that uh, to, to the kind of level of uh, of impact and, and, and the threat that that poses. So. Um, one thing that maybe, you know, just not to, to leave us all down and um, maybe just to, to kind of look at where uh, the uh, Russian sort of force posture has been these days and if there have been major sort of changes when it comes to its, uh, the, the kind of placement um, of the weapons that are capable of uh, the uh, the launch of, of uh, low intensity uh, nuclear uh, uh, strikes, uh, we at least from what my understanding has been, we haven't seen a major shift. But it hasn't does and doesn't mean uh, that we uh, wouldn't be able to see it uh, as well. So uh, again, in terms of a, a game changer, uh, absolutely. Uh, and again, I think then uh, it would make a case for the need to have NATO for decades to come. And really, you know, just probably what it would also do is that it would close the door uh, for a lot of the, the kind of voices that are still in the middle of all of this saying you need to find some ground with Russia, right, uh, to uh, offer it some sort of off-ramp to uh, come to uh, some sort of settlement, I think that it would really slam shut that door uh, for uh, years to come, uh, if, if not decades. Watch this space. There's a lot of nervousness about this in Washington right now. Low probability, but very high consequences, I, yes. not out of the question. I have some really good questions, Gorana. Let me, let me um, turn to them. Um, His Excellency Darius Degudis, uh, Ambassador of Lithuania to Australia, uh, notes that he is extremely pleased NATO is enlarging to include Finland and Sweden. Russia's invasion to, of Ukraine is altering the geopolitical history. Um, his question is, um, could NATO expect some Indo-Pacific countries, especially Australia, with its very strong pro-NATO stance, could, could you see um, some Asian allies joining NATO in some force, mm -hmm. in some way? Um, and Doug Reed from Boeing Australia asks uh, um, a question which is along the same lines. Um, since Australia is an individual partnership and cooperation program member, what more might Australia do to support NATO? So in the near term, to answer Mr. Reed, what can Australia do with NATO? And, and thinking out of the box, you know, is, is, is there a possibility of other countries, even in the Indo-Pacific, joining NATO. I've, I've heard very senior former cabinet members in Japan, for example, privately float the idea of a NAPTO, North Atlantic Pacific Treaty Organization. Sounds fanciful, but so did Finland and Sweden joining NATO uh, mm. two years ago or so. So, um, so, so how, far does, how far does this go, this, this um, uh, participation with NATO even beyond the North Atlantic? Yeah, and uh, thank you for, for those questions. And it's great to see we have also good uh, sort of following uh, among the diplomatic corps. And Lithuania actually is one of the countries that has been most vocal when it comes to uh, managing relations with China uh, in, in really swinging its support uh, towards Taiwan, for instance, over the uh, past couple of years. So um, just to get uh, back to that question, 
question of uh, NATO's partnerships. And uh, I'm glad to see that, uh, uh, again, some of the audience are very much versed in the uh, acronym soup that is uh, the world of uh, NATO partnerships. So uh, basically, uh, that's absolutely right. So NATO uh, has uh, had these uh, individually tailored partnerships, uh, which are the IPCPs, so Individual Partnership and Cooperation Program uh, that uh, it had said with uh, the likes of Australia, but also the uh, other Asia Pacific Four, as it refers to uh, Japan, New Zealand, Korea, and Australia. And at the moment, it's doing something that's a bit uh, more uh, comprehensive, both in terms of the depth and the breadth of cooperation, uh, which uh, it hopes to release uh, somewhere around the, the, the upcoming summit. Uh, and these are new programs called the uh, ITPPs, which are the Individually Tailored Partnership Programs. So uh, basically, uh, they are much more detailed when it comes to activities uh, which around which um, uh, NATO will cooperate with partner states like Australia. And uh, where we see a lot of uh, convergence these days is um, around issues such as emerging and disruptive technologies, uh, countering disinformation, maritime security, um, building resilience, uh, uh, addressing climate change as well. Uh, now, uh, especially I think relevant given the change of government uh, here uh, in Australia uh, and, and some other uh, uh, issues, whether it's you know uh, cyberspace and, and so on. So uh, I would say that these days there is a lot more uh, of, uh, again, sort of uh, um, propelling factors, the kind of push factors Factors on both sides, both NATO and uh, on part of these individual countries uh, to uh, deepen and, and to broaden their relationship. Now, in terms of um, augmenting or, or uh, you know, enlarging NATO to really become a global alliance, I think that there aren't necessarily plans for that anytime soon. But I have heard uh, um, some discussions and, and kind of, you know, again, you referred to some of these formats uh, around, for instance, AUKUS Plus and what this could be, you know, is uh, the kind of minilateralism that we see with AUKUS, with Quad, the best way to move forward, or would it be wiser to try to make it more comprehensive and what are the, the trade-offs there. And obviously understanding that there are different levels of ambition uh, around this region in particular, uh, around the, the, the kind of security uh, cooperation. But Mike, I would also be interested in, in, in your take uh, around uh, Japanese and, and um, Korean responses, uh, whether we are seeing some difference there in um, North Asia as a result uh, of Russia's invasion or in general kind of uh, more, uh, more, more longer term uh, strategic shifts uh, when it comes to their cooperation with NATO? I, I, I think for Japan, this is um, a core foreign policy objective to strengthen um, uh, the uh, Trans-Pacific and Transatlantic Alliance connection. And uh, for example, during the Trump years, the G7 didn't function well because Macron and um, Justin Trudeau in particular um, fought with Donald Trump constantly for good reasons. But the Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo was constantly arguing with his European allies, be patient with Mr. Trump, 
don't blow the G7. Uh, on technology, Japan has pushed for a trilateral uh, US, EU, Japan uh, trade ministers technology dialogue. Um, and, um, and in Japan, there's enthusiasm uh, and support for AUKUS. So for Japan's overall strategy of expanding and externalizing partnerships to deal with a rising and more you know, assertive China, uh, NATO is a logical partner. Um, but I think uh, you're right that you know, to answer Ambassador Darius Duguz's question, I think a collective security arrangement is unlikely because of course, NATO is a collective security arrangement. And if NATO, if Japan and Australia and Korea join NATO, that would obligate Lithuania and now Finland and Sweden to help defend them if they got attacked by say China or North Korea. And I don't think that geopolitics are ready for that. It's too much of an economic stake for all these countries with China, but, you know, watch what happens if the Sino-Russian relationship really moves in directions we don't see now, but in a much more of an alliance, then I think there would be a, a real possibility of a kind of global alliance network. We don't see that yet. What we see now with Ukraine is that uh, Xi Jinping is 100% uh, behind Putin on propaganda and narratives. 100%, including the Chinese official response to Finland and Sweden joining NATO was this is part of an American plot to contain China and Russia. So 100% in with Putin on propaganda narrative, um, partially supportive economically, but not to the point of risking sanctions and not supporting Putin militarily, but in part because the Biden administration's constantly engaging Beijing with warnings not to do it. So we'll see. It would be foolish for Xi Jinping to throw his lot in with Putin any more than he has. But if that happened, I think you might see more of a, an expansion of NATO to the Pacific or something new. Um, let me ask you another set of questions, Gorana. Um, uh, uh, Stephen Chase from the conference room um, and a couple of people actually in the Q&A uh, button asked about the significance of NATO for what we're seeing in the Pacific Islands, the Chinese security pact with the Solomons. Obviously, France has historic interests, the largest EEZ. Um, uh, one of the questioners points out that, that, the, that the, the, the rule of law uh, in the Pacific Islands is based on the British system, so Britain has an important role to play. Um, but what, what do you think the role is for NATO and Europe in, in dealing with the Pacific Islands? Um, and could it even potentially be a missionary for NATO given France's uh, interests there? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think when it comes to engagement with the Pacific Islands, uh, this will be done, I think, more through the EU than NATO. Uh, NATO, is, as much as it is, uh, you know, a kind of platform also for uh, coordination and cooperation around uh, issues that aren't necessarily in the traditional kind of domain of security, uh, hard security, uh, it also has has some limits as to what it can do uh, and what it's uh, able to do. So, you know, that's not to say that in cases of, say, disaster relief or crisis management, it can't be called upon. It definitely has 
that ability and it has previously been deployed uh, for, for kind of out of area operations uh, in that context. But what I think is much more significant is uh, the way in which uh, we are going to see European Union step up its involvement in the, in the Indo-Pacific. And obviously now with a growing number of uh, member states uh, overlapping in their membership in both NATO and uh, the European Union, uh, we might expect a lot more again in terms of uh, contributions to uh, say in big infrastructure projects, uh, there's already a lot of appetite for, you know, we've heard uh, a lot of these announcements, whether they are uh, the Blue Dot Network or Build Back Better World uh, or a Global Gateway on part of the European Union. So I think that um, this is probably the space to watch the most. And again, uh, just from some of the conversations that uh, I've had uh, with the officials from Europe, uh, I think that there is a recognition that uh, there needs to be a change in the approach uh, that the West collectively has towards the Pacific Islands, uh, primarily in the way that they don't necessarily, uh, you know, come up with a plan, this is how we help you in a way, but uh, a lot more about listening to actually what the needs are and having those partners uh, propose what it is that they need. Uh, and um, obviously with all of the announcements overnight, what's happening in this space, we are going to see a lot more competition, the systemic comp competition uh, spillover uh, onto these mostly island states. And, and the, the systemic competition is, is um, as much economic, diplomatic, um, uh, as it is military. And, and of course, the NATO Charter doesn't require NATO countries to defend France and the Pacific or Britain and the Falklands. That's not how it was designed. So it would be quite a new step to have this out of area um, obligation extend to the Pacific. But in areas that you mentioned, economics and so forth, um, there's a lot of scope for cooperation uh, in what is still not a military contest with China, thankfully. It's a contest for influence and norms and economic uh, rulemaking. Um, I, I have more questions, but they're, and they're good, but they're huge. So um, <laughs> I think we better end. Um, I think so too. <laughs> it's you know, three as, minutes to the top of the hour, I know. so yeah. So as Richard Kipling said, the East is East, the West is West, and never the twain shall meet, but Gorana, the twain have met. Um, uh, I, I really do think uh, there are there are real uncertainties about domestic politics uh, in France, in the U.S., frankly, um, and and in uh, uh, the Pacific. Um, but the forces of world history really do seem to be pushing uh, NATO and uh, America's uh, Pacific allies closer together in a way we've really not seen, certainly not, you know, in, in our recent memory. Um, so your work is going to be really interesting and really important. And I, for one, will keep following it closely. So thank you very much. Let me um, conclude by um, inviting everyone to join us for a discussion uh, of uh, what it will mean to have a Kennedy in Canberra. Um, Caroline Kennedy um, will be the United States ambassador to Australia. Um, I got to know her well when she was ambassador in Japan. She was terrific. Um, and um, we'll have a, a, a panel of um, experts on American uh, politics and diplomacy and, and the US-Australia alliance to think through um, what it means to have a Kennedy 
um, an experienced diplomat, um, a very high profile um, and very effective um, diplomat. Um, and what should be on the agenda for Ambassador Kenny when she comes to Canberra? We are uh, giving free advice and I, I, I'm sure she'll be interested. So join us on May 31st. You can see the um, information up on the screen now. Uh, Garana, thank you. Um, terrific discussion. I look forward to many more um, when, I, when I move down under. Thank you all for joining us.